0: Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be having a very interesting show. Uh... Things that you wondered about the lockdowns and whether and the whole pandemic, um, why we have been made to suffer with um, with all of the mandates that have been going on. Well, today we have uh, the author of a new book called "Covid Nineteen Lockdowns on Trial." I think uh, Michael Beatrice, the uh, my guest, is. the author of a book that I'm sure many of you have thought of, uh, in terms of putting lockdowns on trial in your own life, and what impact it has had on you. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Um, first, I'd like to start with uh, how the the reason. Michael, let me just do a little intro here. <laughs> Michael is a best-selling author. Of many, um, fifteen actually business books, um, and so this is not the kind of book that he typically writes. Um, right. He is known for giving advice to people in all aspects of business: how to get a job, how to do your resume, all of those things. And um, but this is this is a, a total um, uh, change from that, and and. Um, and what I was so interested in was that uh, when I was reading the introduction, I think that the, uh, I think that the impetus um, for writing this book is very personal. It comes from a relative um, of yours, uh, yes, one of your family members in Detroit, who actually died uh, in a care facility. Did I get that right?
2: You did get that correct, yes. So what I think uh, so, Dr. Liemann, really, what really kicked me off with this was uh, I'd written a lot of business books, like you mentioned, uh, career reference guides over the last uh, 25 years or so. And about a year ago, a little less than that, uh, there were two cruise ships that were quarantined, one off Japan and one off of California, Princess Cruise Ships. And uh, I, particularly, I followed the second one with a bit of interest. I'd, I'd been on that cruise ship before. It's the only cruise I've been on, the Grand Princess. And that was the one that was hung up off the coast of California uh, for a few, uh, few days oh. while they were trying to figure this thing out. And when it ported in, it was really covered on the news like it was the Bronco Chase, if you recall. And,
1: uh-huh. and shortly
2: after that, Nothing really happened, and I thought that was odd given all the attention and what we'd heard about it, and Wuhan had locked down in China, and it looked like there was some sprouting activity in Italy uh, due to COVID-19, and then about 10 days later, the Imperial College released a model that predicted in a do-nothing scenario, over 2 million Americans will have died of COVID-19 by last summer. And I took that model mm-hmm. apart because I thought, God, that seems strange if that's true, It seems like more would have happened on the cruise ships. That's a perfect scientific experiment. Perfect. Do-nothing scenario. Uh Everybody's cooped up together. And when I applied the model inputs, uh, assumptions to the cruise ship uh, data, we should have had 155 deaths on those cruise ships, and we had 10. And all 10 were elderly, 7 with comorbidities. Um, Not minimizing that, I'm just putting, putting some perspective in this. And... I just thought there was no way these models were. this particular model was going to play out. And then the next day, California locked down, and Illinois and New York followed, and we were still there. Uh, and so hmm. shortly after that, when 40 million Americans ended up unemployed um, by the end of April, uh, that's what connected me to really write this book. Um, I did lose a cousin in a care facility. Uh, she had Downs. She was in her early 70s, suffered from... Multiple comorbidities, uh, and 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 this did this did pull her through, uh, and that was a sad thing for our family. Uh, but it was really more the um, the unemployment that put me over the edge to sit down and write this uh-huh. without even knowing if I would ever see the daylight. <laughs>
1: uh huh. Yes, because that's your that's your career in in, empl- in employment, not unemployment. Um. So okay. So what did you start to do? When you started seeing these numbers in regard to unemployment, what uh, like what finally? How did you finally sit down to write the book? What what one day? What happened?
2: Oh, just uh, it was crazy. My son was home from college. Uh, it, you know, like all the kids, and he actually is a college baseball player. and And the team got sent home. They were on a road trip in California, and he got sent home on a Thursday. And Friday they canceled classes, and he drove home Saturday. And we stewed on this for a couple weeks and I I woke up one Monday morning and just said I'm going to write a book about this and I remember him thinking God you've got it you're crazy right (laughs) this is way out of your wheelhouse Um, and and so I sat down and it was just monumental research that you know I've got 350 citations in the book and it was just a to me it was really a risk and consequence exercise of there's no doubt that COVID 19 is real no doubt at all Uh, no doubt that it's worse than the flu and no doubt that it's caused excess deaths. The question is, have we done a proportionate response to this, these kind of one size fits all lockdown methods, particularly in some of, the, um, uh, some of the states like Michigan, where I'm from, California, um, New York, you know, very, very stringent restrictions for, for what's coming up on a year, kids out of school. And it, it just, it's, it's almost felt like it's been in the Twilight Zone for the last 10 and a half months. And, and that's just, I, mm-hmm. it was like a calling. I had to write about it and study it.
1: Okay. <laughs> and so, um, what was your? I mean, what? What we did? You have a hypothesis that you were trying to prove.
2: Well, I could tell early on based on the uh, so the the uh, Imperial College model was discredited early on, but the IHME model, an organization out of University of Washington, which is funded by the Gates Foundation, um, they were still predicting uh, hospitalizations and deaths that were far, far outside of reality uh, in New York City. And so when New York City, even real time, wasn't delivering a fraction of the activity of COVID uh, in the hospitals that was being predicted, it, you, you could just tell this thing wasn't going to be quite as adverse as what was um, what was being predicted and these sweeping lockdowns, right? I mean, the huge unemployment, the kids out of school, the deaths of despair that were going to be imminent as a result of this, uh, just the overall fractured society. I, it, it's, I, I still can't believe where we are, um, particularly where we are with schools and education today, but the whole thing has just been a very disproportionate response.
1: So, okay. So so you're... you're thesis or what you were trying to, where you were hoping to get to um, was that to show that this really was an overreaction.
2: An overreaction, just an overreach. You know, and I, I'm not somebody who sits around and, and talks about civil liberties or constitutional arguments. Um, to me, you've got to make a data argument first, right? If this is like, let's say, the Spanish flu was, um, and you, you kind of do a run rate on population, we would have lost 1.8 million Americans if, if this impacted us like the Spanish flu. If that was true, you could make a pretty good argument for these um, what they call NPIs or non-pharmaceutical interventions, or we can just call them lockdown efforts. Um, you can make a decent argument for that. When you've got something that is only uh, dangerous to a, an identifiable segment of the population and you're doing a one-size-fits-all, it's just nuts i mean it's it's a it's a complete overreach and it just shows that the lack of surgical um, precision to try to mitigate this with keeping kind of the rest of america going and then you've got these crazy things where some states are doing very, very strict restrictions, um, like, uh, you know, like California is number one. California is number one on the list for the tightest restrictions in the country. Um, and New York is very high on that list. Michigan's been very high. Illinois. And, and so if lockdowns work, the states that are most open should be getting blown away uh, in COVID activity by uh, our COVID suppression by the states that have a lot of restrictions. In other words, if you've got lockdowns that are strict yeah. in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, et cetera, they should be doing way, way better in COVID deaths and hospitalizations than places that are more relaxed like the Dakotas uh, and uh, Oklahoma, for example. Uh, Florida is a good example. And there's no statistical correlation between lockdowns and better performance. They're, it, they're just It's all about the same.
1: So, did you um, did you compare statistics for like, for example, what about? Uh, yes, I agree with what you're saying that you know, if lockdowns were the key, then the states who had the most lockdowns, most stringent lockdowns, uh, would be should be doing far better in COVID cases. And I live in California uh, with a ridiculous governor who um, changes his rules more often than he changes his underwear and um was caught uh, you know, in the right. scandal as a hypocrite, uh, where in the restaurant um the French laundry, a very expensive restaurant, and right. with no mask, and with a whole bunch of people in the in the dinner at the dinner, in a room right. inside with no masks. and so I mean that's part of the issue too, the hypocrisy of the people who are making all these rules so um and, and also he included uh co- closing the beaches which, you know, um, when sun is a very important thing for people to uh, to be exposed to in terms of helping their immune system and all that. Not, not necessarily correct. crowding together on a beach, but certainly being able to walk on the beach. Um, so, so did you compare the statistics of st- states that are, were locked down very stringently versus ones that weren't?
2: I did. I spent quite a bit of time comparing those states, and I don't even like making too many comparisons between uh, Florida and California, let's say, or Florida and New York, because the geographies are different. Those are actually very easy arguments to make in favor of Florida, because they've been the m- m- much more relaxed uh, and uh, uh, and have, haven't really had any, any worse uh, performance. New York's had the worst, but New York also had some issues. The way they were treating COVID deaths early on was borderline barbaric, and so uh, you almost need to kind of pull early data out of New York and New Jersey kind of off the mix because it was just an anomaly of how how the rush that was experienced, the lack of understanding for treatments. But when you look at the areas like, let's say, the Dakotas, when the Dakotas got hit in November and December, every state within a 500-mile radius got hit at the same time. The curves, you can overlay the curves on one on top of the other. They all look identical. And when you compare Florida to the southeastern states, uh, again, the curves look very, very similar, and the performance is about the same. And so it seems like if lockdowns work, they should be doing, I don't even, five, ten times worse, something very substantial to warrant kids being out of class uh, and people not working and and uh, all the social dysfunction that we're, that we're witnessing. You just can't find correlating data that supports lockdowns work or, candidly, masks work. You can't find any correlating data in the U.S. Um, that shows a mask mandate, uh, good adhesion to that, uh, uh, and we've had that. You know, we, people are complying with uh, these things. Uh,
1: Michael, let me, let me just... Let's... Let me I'm sorry to interrupt you but let me stop you here because we do need to take a break um, sure. and and before you go into masks. <laughs> so okay. um, my guest is Michael Beatrice. His book is called COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial. We're talking about things that uh, lots of people are wondering about just how necessary with all the things, all the mandates that we have all suffered through during the past year. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. and welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Michael Beatrice. He wrote a book that many of us uh, would have done in our minds uh, in any case, but not with all the work that he put into it, comparing all the different states and all the different ways that uh, COVID has affected us, and particularly the lockdowns. The book is called COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial. So, um... During the break, Michael and I were talking. I was asking him about where he lived during the uh, pandemic, and he has been living in Texas, and that is one of the (laughs) lucky for you, Michael. (laughs) That is one of the states, if not well. I guess I guess um, Texas and Florida, right, are were the best in terms of the least restrictions.
2: Actually, you know, they're ranked in the – well, Florida is in the top ten for least restrictions. I think they're ranked four or five. Texas is actually in the 20s. Oklahoma right now is ranked number one, but Iowa just lifted their restrictions. Both of the Dakotas are pretty relaxed. Uh, So you've really got Florida, Oklahoma, the Dakotas. They're probably the top four Uh for easiest, uh, Mm. least restrictions.
1: So um, let's talk about one of the things that has disturbed me the most about, about the lockdown, about the pandemic, and, you know, the way it's... Well, first of all, uh, the biggest thing that has bothered me is that besides having an MD, I have a master's in public health, and I received a, a, um, a fellowship while I was going to graduate school for the master's in public health. I received a fellowship from NIMH. And I did research in how to use the media to educate people about um, illnesses, psychiatric illnesses, physical illnesses, and how to to use it to prevent these illnesses and to treat these illnesses. And so in Public Health 101, you learn that you never do a health uh, campaign, regardless of what kind of health uh, disorder you're addressing, you never do it where you uh, threaten people and you frighten people and you scare them to death in order to get them to do what you want them to do, the behaviors that you want them to do. And yet that is what has been done from day one with all of the media, um, all of the statistics, how many people tested positive today, which of course is, doesn't really mean anything and because it had to do with how many tests there were and then That's how correct. many people are in the hospital, how many people died. Um, and so it, we were just, we were, we were and we still are um, uh, overpowered by these statistics. And, um, and so, which, which, in fact, um, weakened our immune system. The stress of hearing all of that kept weakening our immune system. Dr. Fauci was the voice in the face of gloom and doom. And, um, and that made people more vulnerable to getting COVID. So it has been, um, you know, it has been shocking to me that, um, I mean, I'm not the only person uh, who studied public health or has a degree in public health. There are a lot of other people, and and yet um, none of that was used uh, in this campaign.
2: It's a great comment that you made about public health because public health now <clears throat> has become something that's called zero COVID. And so it's really a one-dimensional single lens perspective on suppressing COVID. That's what that's what public health is today. Public health isn't balancing um, education and psychology and, and um, uh, psychological behavior and depression uh, and the things that are uh, byproducts of the lockdowns in terms of unemployment, lack of, of um, social interaction, lack just lack of normalcy. And so, public health now has become again, it's a zero COVID lens. And it's, it's very harmful when we've really done a poor job of um, really insulating or protecting the sliver of the population that's most vulnerable. I mean, if we took long-term care facilities and were able to do a perfect job, which, which I, it seems to be very difficult. I'm not even blaming at this point, because after 10 months, we're still getting a bunch of long-term care facility um, COVID deaths. So it must be very difficult. But if you pull those out, uh, we'd barely know that we were in a pandemic. I'm not saying we wouldn't, but we, we would know that we, we would have these four-week spikes in different communities when it hit. But by and large, like I live in Dallas, kids are not in school in Dallas. We have 50% of our kids, even though they could go to class, they're not in class. Even Florida, to 100% of the schools are pretty much open, but only 50% of the attendance or, or even a little bit less than that is happening. And so it's it's sort of this, it's this crazy thing where if you lived in some of these communities right now, you wouldn't know COVID even existed, right? Hospitalizations are down 50,000 in the last nationally in the last uh, four weeks. And so we're at like 6% occupancy of COVID patients in hospitals in terms of hospital beds. You know, that's not a rush and that's really why we lock down. We lock down because the model suggested that in a best-case scenario, we would have a three-fold shortfall in ICUs. In worst case, a tenfold, like on our peak day that was supposed to be July. That never happened. We never got uh, close as a country um, but places did, right? Los Angeles got got in the 85% range at one point. Uh, and lots of places, get, you know, got close in ICs. But that doesn't mean you lock down all of society for a year. That's where it, this thing has just gotten nuts.
1: Uh-huh. Well, actually, California um, California, uh, is getting a little better now, but uh, right. for a few weeks, it's been there's been no room in the ICUs and and even the hospitals um a lot of them have been sending um uh ambulances like they had to send away ambulances either to other hospitals or they had some um they put tents in the in the parking lot in some hospitals um you know so it was pretty bad for a while um but you know and then one of the things that i think is really interesting is how Uh, and and is a result of all these strict mandates, is people have been rebelling. Um, You know, like, for example, when there was all this talk about um, uh, cancel Thanksgiving, then cancel Christmas, cancel New Year's, uh, all these cancel things, and what happened was, as you know, um, people not only didn't cancel, I mean, some people did, but a lot of people... Um, purposely flew from one place to another. I mean, you know, it's, which was kind of surprising because it was one thing to sort of, you know, get together with people near where you live, but all these people flying um, was pretty shocking. But it was really, it, it was their rebellion against being told to stay home. What do you do to rebel if you're being told to stay home? You fly away. And that is really what has caused uh, an increase, especially during these holiday times of COVID.
2: Yeah, we uh, I'll tell you this. Uh, airplane travel, uh you know, you can, we can airports are a different story potentially. Uh airplanes are one of the safest places to be, honestly. It's safer than going to shop at Costco. Um, the way that they do the way the air is ventilated in an airplane, um, there hasn't been we've had fifty million flights worldwide since uh the census started. And uh we haven't had a single sort of outbreak, if you kind of remember the movie outbreak from 25 years ago, um, Patrick Dempsey's character got on a flight from California to Boston and, you know, and there was a bunch of spread on that airplane and that's how it took off. Um, we haven't had a situation like that out of 50 million flights. So air travel is one of the safest things you can do. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if it's not so much people rebelling as they're just dying to get back to normal. I think that after, uh, after 10 months, it's like you've given the government a run at this, and it's time to get back to normal. Uh, and so there's two two sides to this. Um, Carol, one is that COVID is real, right? And so you, what you described as the uh, shortage or tightness of um, ICUs and hospital beds in um, Southern California for, for four or five weeks, that was real. Uh, and you had that experience in Detroit. We had it in New York in April. That doesn't mean that you lock down everybody out of society. There's a bit of this where you have to um, let people exercise good judgment, which is what California, or excuse me, what South Dakota's Governor Kristi Noem and, and Ron DeSantis in Florida have done, for example. You've and, and you've got you've got to sort of get through this thing. But by locking down everybody, keeping kids out of school, there's not an incident in the whole world that's happened nowhere in the country, nowhere in the world associated with kids being in class face to face and an outbreak. Same with air travel. So I don't know that it's rebellion as much as people are just dying to get back to normal. Well,
1: except for kids, except for kids. I mean, I am very much um, for kids going back to school. Um, I have done a number of interviews and written op-eds and all of that as far as what is happening to kids because they're not in school with getting depressed and committing suicide and getting anxious and um, PTSD and all kinds of things and and getting abused because of parents being frustrated and so on. You're right. Um, Or watching their uh, parent being, you know, watching domestic violence happening between their parents. Uh, All of that. So, yes, I think kids should go back to school. And I think, actually, what I really think is that they should be made to repeat the year because they didn't learn anything with remote learning.
2: Yeah, uh, wherever the assessment lies on what happens with kids and whether they have to repeat the year, there's no question that they've had fractured learning, and this year was practically a waste. No argument on that. Certain subjects more than others. Uh, math and sciences particularly, there's a big slump uh, and fall behind. And, uh, you know, what the, uh, what the remedy of that is in terms of having everybody repeat, I think the high performers have actually done well. This is really, I've done okay. What, what we've really seen here is a widening gap between either the gifted kids and the non-gifted kids or the families that have resources to bridge this with tutors or a stay-at-home parent who's, you know, kind of helping, helping this along. Whereas if you've got a disadvantaged family or someone who's, uh, um, you know, kind of ranked 50% or lower in their class or in their grade, those are the kids that are really suffering. And unfortunately, there's a high correlation between um, lower-income families – uh, that are experiencing this from an academic perspective uh, versus you know a higher income family is is more likely to bridge these resources and uh, and, um, and get through this. It's very very sad. It's it's I, I made this comment some time ago, but it's where COVID nineteen as a disease really preys on the physically frail and weak. Um, the lockdowns really prey on the socially and economically frail, and the the mm. whole thing is mm. just a tragedy.
1: Yes, that part is true. Um, you know, it really has taken away... I mean, I treat a number of families and it really has taken away the enthusiasm that kids have for school. It's not... I mean, yes, there are some kids who are self-starters and, um, right. you know, they can take advantage of the more greater time that they have at home to do more reading and all kinds of stuff. But the majority of kids are not really like that and it is... Learning um by remote has really... Uh, cause them to be less interested in learning. And um, so it's really, it, it has really been, really been very unfortunate. Um, what about, well, one thing I want to talk about and, uh, is the nursing homes, because that has just, you know, the situation in New York where Cuomo um, sent COVID-positive patients into nursing homes, um, you know, various kinds of nursing homes, assisted right. living, and all different kinds of nursing homes, um, and and thereby spread uh, COVID amongst all the other people in the nursing home. And the the numbers are staggering. I mean, he tried to keep uh, keep it quiet and keep. So he kept putting out certain numbers, um, and then just recently, uh, the bigger numbers have come out. And I'm sure there's there are even higher numbers than that. And um, right. I personally would like him to be tried for murder. You know, I think anybody who um, ever who has a parent or a grandparent, or and particularly if they were ever in a place like that, can certainly or or if they haven't, but you worry that maybe one day they will be. Um, that that's just a devastating thought and um he really instead of getting an emmy do you know that he got an emmy for his i do for his great um uh, uh for his uh his press conferences um that earned him an emmy instead of i mean he sh- <laughs> he deserves a sell
2: yeah so i've got i'd love to weigh in a couple comments on that one i i've made this Sort of observation, but but uh, he also wrote the book about leadership, right? And I was I was thinking to myself when that book came out, when does the losingest coach in sports write a book about leadership? So or about coaching. So uh, one thing I'd say is New York had reported 29% of all fatalities uh, attributed to. Um, the source of nursing homes. Nobody that followed the data thought that was real. Nobody. Nobody in my circle, the people that I know do hardcore, accurate research, everybody knew that number had to be, um, had to be closer to 50% because it was close to 50% everywhere in the world. And so we just knew that didn't smell mm-hmm. right. Um, but I'd, I'd love to weigh in and uh, give you something else to think about. I think that the decisions that um, – that Newsom made, and Cuomo made, and Whitmer made, and um, uh, Wolf made in uh, Pennsylvania, there were, I mean, among others, uh, Minnesota's governor did this, this too. When they made the, these decisions to send these patients back, these decisions were made within a couple days. And um, none of these governors even have your medical background, your healthcare background. I don't know that it would have been intuitive to them in a couple-day period to, uh, to, to connect those dots. The people that I really hold responsible for this is when you think about um, uh, CDC Director Redfield at the time and Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci and all the state uh, uh, health secretaries. These people with their backgrounds, it should have been very intuitive based on the cruise ship data that we had, um, only elderly people had, had uh, lost their lives on the cruise ships. And based on what we knew in Italy, long-term care facilities were getting ravaged. These health care, quote, experts, they should have known better. And I really hold them more responsible than even the governors because the governors are sitting around in a couple-day rush um, brainstorming well, on, like what, like, like, what do we do, what do we do? And they're taking advice from these people. And they got bad advice from subject matter experts, and I, I think that w- the decisions they made, like you look at Rachel Levine, who was the HHS person in, in Pennsylvania, uh, she, uh, she, they had issued an order in Pennsylvania to send uh, COVID positive patients back in the care facilities. She did know better. She pulled her mother out of one and put her in a hotel. Huh. It's like the most egregious huh. insider trading huh. thing ever,
1: yes, yes, well, we're gonna is a good place to stop because we have to take another break. um My good. guest is Michael Beatrice, his book is called Covid Nineteen Lockdowns on Trial, and yes, there you know um history is going to be looking at all of this stuff as well, you know, from a uh, down the road and think, what were we all thinking? Um, I think there's enough blame to go around, both to the, to the politicians and to the medical people they consulted. All right, True. well, we'll be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking uh, with my guest today, Michael Beatrice, about his book, COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial um not just not just a book it 's uh, tons of research that he did on all of these things, whether we really whether the lockdowns helped or hurt um and so on and one of the things that um we can talk about is masks. What do you think about th- that the impact has been of that
2: good that 's a big question uh and so we we most places uh, instituted mask mandates uh, sometime between uh, April uh, in New York, for example, or in in Texas we instituted those in uh, in July, and I think California might have in May, could be. But anyway, so it's been a long time. What you and and I will I'm going to go on record and say I wear a mask in Texas. We have a state mandate. I don't. Uh, I'm not a rebel rebellious. Um, uh, person about not wearing masks. Uh, I know they don't work. Uh, the types of masks that, w- that people are wearing uh, are ineffective, but that's not the mountain that I'm going to fall on. I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. But you can't find correlating data anywhere in the country that shows... Uh, a mask mandate, and then continued suppression of the virus you can 't find it well you really can 't find it anywhere in the world, um, or at least in Western Europe as well as in America, but not one community in America where that 's actually worked here 's why the a viral particle is uh, a thousand times smaller than the average poor in a face mask, anything less than an N95. And that's the reason that you're not seeing any suppression of this. It might make everybody feel good, but it just isn't really doing it. And so a great example is from your home state, when the fires were hitting uh, in the San Francisco area, you might recall, um, I think this was in the early fall, but you might recall that uh, the CDC came out and said, don't wear a face mask in the Bay Area um, because it will be ineffective at blocking smoke particles. Smoke particles are hundreds of times larger than a viral particle. If they're not effective (laughs) at blocking something big like a smoke particle, how on earth is it effective at blocking a viral particle? And so the Mm. idea that that the discussion around, oh, well, you know what, we should maybe wear two masks or three masks. I mean, it's becoming a lunacy. And so we are probably in this. um, Masks are probably going to be with us um, to varying degrees in states the rest of 2021. And then my guess is we'll be out of this thing by the end of this year. Uh, But you just can't find data to support. So wait, let
1: me ask you a question. So so what do you think is the reason... um, why we are being told um, to wear, you know, masks and now two masks or three masks and gloves and all of that. Why do you think, uh, especially, you know, for somebody like Dr. Fauci, why do you think people, scientists, doctors, um, who presumably know some of these facts? Why are they telling? Not that everybody, not that all doctors are telling people this, by the way, but like, let's take Dr. Fauci. He's um, my favorite uh, person to criticize <laughs> um, because, <laughs> because as I, I, I think I said, he's the boy. He's been the face and the and the voice of gloom right. and doom from the beginning. And I always say that he has caused more people to die from COVID because of all the stress that he's put on us. So, okay, why do people like Dr. Fauci tell us that we should wear two masks now? And three, you know, he's gone back and forth, no masks, two masks, all of this. Um, shake well, don't well, off, hands,
2: uh, probably, uh,
1: like in the future. Go ahead.
2: First off, prior to COVID, if you go into uh, uh, medical articles in uh, the Lancet and MedRx, and JAMA, if you, you won't find any articles or analysis that says that um, wearing a surgical mask to a cloth mask is effective at blocking viral particles. And what you'll actually find now is some of those have been redacted or pulled off the web. So you have to find them in archives. Some, And then if you look at our Surgeon General, the statement he made in, in February was, don't wear a mask, it's not going to matter. Fauci said that in March. Why we've shifted into this um, seems to be a doubling down of bad policies. It's almost like why are we continuing to do these severe lockdowns? We're, it's it's almost like nobody can admit um, uh, nobody can admit that, that some of these mitigations just simply were an overreach and they just weren't effective. Uh, but the the data, I don't forget the stuff you see on cable news. For example, on all the stuff with respect to masks, there's no area in the country that's been suppressed that's been able to escape COVID because they had a mask mandate. It's, the data is exactly the same whether you live in a community that's relaxed or a community that happens to have very tight restrictions with really good um, adherence to, uh, to mask mandates. Uh, why, we're, why we're still in this, God, Dr. Carroll, I don't know. I, I, I can't even imagine we still have uh, most of the uh, uh, mitigation tactics, You know, some of the restrictions that we have in place. I, I can't even believe it.
1: Well, um, do you think there are political reasons?
2: You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's uh, – there's certainly a high correlation between Democrat-led states and tighter restrictions. That is just a fact. That's not me being political. That's just how it is. Uh, it, but I, I think that the people that might be – the hardcore conservatives that might think, well, they were doing all this just to hurt Donald Trump, I, I never bought into that before the election and I don't buy into it now because you've still got states uh, with conservative states or or Republican-led states, let's say, uh, like Ohio and even Texas to a degree where uh, they still have restrictions in place. So I don't think it was – I think that the media has created such a zero-COVID type of environment that nobody wants – it takes great metal to stand up for that. And so when you've got a Ron DeSantis or a Kristi Noem standing up – uh, the the um, the fortitude those two possess, and other governors, but they're the face of it uh, to to withstand that media pressure is um, I I think it's just the media pressure that's done it.
1: hmm Well, we certainly have been um, we certainly have been you know the, the symbolism of masks uh, covering your mouth don't don't you don't have a voice um be quiet uh you know just listen to us be good boys and girls you know there is something to be said for that in terms of um to be concerned about i'm concerned about it in any case um what about uh since your bailiwick is uh, employment and the economics what have you been hearing from all the people that you deal with in that sphere how bad well, US, how bad is it and how bad is it going to get
2: um, well, I, 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 it's probably not going to get worse. It's, we've probably it's, – it's, it's not going to get worse because we're – the pandemic as we know it is over. Uh, you just aren't hearing that on the headlines, but between – uh, this huge reduction in hospitalizations over the last thirty days, uh, we probably have over one hundred and seventy five million people that have been infected we 're aggressively rolling out uh, vaccines, and some states are doing a phenomenal job at getting them targeted just to the elderly. Um, we have states that have over fifty percent of the elderly population already vaccinated i mean that that 's incredible uh, and so the pandemic as we knew it is over so economically. The worst is probably behind us in terms of unemployment. Industries that are not coming back anytime soon, the airline industry is going to be fractured for probably years. Um, And the hotel industry is going to be fractured. And office space is going to be fractured. Not because of COVID, but because companies aren't going to keep spending money that they've realized they can do without. So from a Mm white-collar perspective, what you're going to see is companies have realized they can – This work-at-home thing for a lot of Fortune 500 companies, probably you know, works okay. And so, while while some office-based stuff will remember, will uh, will uh, return, you aren't going to see that come back like it was. You're not going to see air travel like it was, frivolous air travel and hotels. Those industries are fractured. But I do think that most of the jobs uh, and the uh, blue-collar jobs, which is some, you know, depending on the industry, haven't been as affected, you're going to see most of those return. You'll, you'll end up seeing uh, the restaurant industry and the entertainment industry, those will recover. While we're going to lose 100,000 restaurants nationwide over all this, the people will return and those people will, you know, they're just going to be more, there are other lockdown casualties, those small business owners, those small restaurant owners. But new ones will sprout up. There will be new demand. This whole thing is so tragic from an economic well, perspective.
1: Uh huh. But what about you know? You were saying you think it's the pandemic is over. Um, what about these new strains?
2: So there's a lot of hype there. But first, there was a UK variant. But the UK is actually having a, a pretty substantial decrease in, in in COVID activity in the midst of their variant. And then the Moderna vaccine uh, came out today. Uh, there was a release today that that was uh, effective against what they're calling the South African variant. But I'm telling you, most of the stuff is like real, it's real panic porn. There's no evidence that these variants are going to cause um, any kind of substantial impact or, or even measurable impact. I mean, we're, COVID activity is dropping like a rock right now uh, across the country. You don't see those headlines very much, but if you look at the data, COVID activity is falling off a cliff. That's really, really good, positive news, and I wish more people had that awareness. Uh, there's great news out there right now of where we're, the, the uh, trend since the first of the year. Uh, the pandemic as okay. we knew it, it it's, um, it's over. It, COVID-19 will stay with us the rest of our lives, uh, but the rush and the, the uh, uh, COVID-19 as an epidemic, that's going to be behind us this spring.
1: Well, while we're talking about economics, um, what do you think about the uh, economics of the vaccine? Um, I mean, I I have long thought that um, a lot of this, like some the hype um, about getting the vaccine. I mean, a lot of this will be making you know we're going to be making big pharma into multi multi. <laughs> billionaires. Um, I mean, they are already, but like we're increasing their, their income many, many times with these vaccines. And I can't help but think there is something sort of cynical about that. I mean, maybe I'm cynical, but there's something sort of uh, fishy or, you know, it's not right that they should be profiting so much from this pandemic.
2: Well, uh, I know that, uh, I know that uh, Pfizer and, and Johnson & Johnson have, have, I'm putting in quotations, pledged that they won't make any profit off of this in the near term. They, I think they all received something like a billion dollars <laughs> for R&D. Um, I think what I'd more encourage everybody to think about is um, – is uh, we've got about 60 people that are controlling the, the strings of, of 330 million Americans, 50 governors and about a dozen people in Washington. And, mm-hmm. uh, and vaccines are our only way out. And we are going to be in an environment where, at least for a while, uh, places of entertainment, perhaps air travel, they're going to require um, – you know, these immunity passports, right? A proof of vaccine or proof of antibodies. There's a point when we're just going to have to suck it up and get back to normal. So I'm not sure this is the mountain I'd fall on uh, or hill I die on here for, for, with respect to vaccines. Um, if well, you are I young, am very under concerned 16. About these
1: vac- I, I'm very concerned about these vaccine pass- passports and all of that. I think this is uh, it's like Chinese. It's like communist China or Russia and i think that the, well that's very right i mean the uh, one thing that,
2: one thing that's sort of crazy about the uh, the vaccines themselves by any measure they're experimental vaccines right and so um, if you are pregnant uh, i mean first off consult your doctor but based on the data only that i'm saying if you are pregnant you, you should stay away from it. If you are young, you should stay away from it. Yes. And they didn't do any trials on people that are over 80. And so probably look hard, talk to your doctor about, um, or people that you know if you are over 80. Like, I haven't let my parents get, get the vaccine yet because they're 89 years yes. old and the data's, the jury's out. Uh, but by and large, yes. uh, well, I'm not, by and large, I'm if you're saying, in that 30 to yet. 60 range and healthy, take it and move on.
1: I, well, I, I I have to disagree with you. I mean, I think okay. that people should make their own decisions. Uh, I'm right. not planning on taking it. Uh, I think people need to make their own decisions as to whether they want to take it or not, but I am very much against all the passports and being required to take it on planes and in certain entertainment venues and things like that. I, I, that's that's um, communism. Well, all right. So I agree with I guess, you. I uh, just don't know you. what the option is. Mm-hmm. Well... Uh, well, if, it, if the pandemic is disappearing, we don't have to worry about it. Well, let me t- tell everybody the name of your book again. It's COVID-19 Lockdowns on Trial, and my guest has been Michael Beatrice. And thank you very much. Michael, you clearly have done tons of research uh, in this book, and, um, and, and it's really great for people to, to think about this, you know, to, to not just be sheep. So thank you, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host,